you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. series, Jesus People. Yes, we are super excited to start in this series as we kind of make our way through Acts chapter 2. April 1966, Time Magazine publishes this cover, Is God Dead? The article describes the problems facing theologians and churches and pastors as they try to make God relevant to their increasingly secular society. The following year, 1967, right, is the summer of love and the hippie movement. The Vietnam War, the civil rights struggle rages on, and the Beatles just released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, right? All these things are happening in 67. The world seemed to be at deep unrest, not unlike our cultural moment. But even there, in the midst of the chaos, something was beginning to stir, that there in the middle of all this stuff happening, God was at work. A move of God was about to take place. In the coming years, an explosion of faith would take place as hundreds of thousands of people would begin to follow Jesus all over the United States. God's Spirit outpouring, bringing many people to faith. Four years later, June 1971, Time Magazine publishes this cover, The Jesus Movement, The Jesus Revolution. In that short span of four years, the conversation went from, is God dead, to a Jesus revolution, right? From one moment questioning whether churches and, and the way of Jesus would last, and the next one about this uproar, this, this powerful move of God in our nation. All of this changed what from came to be known as the Jesus People Movement. As God was calling people onto himself, this powerful outpouring of his spirit, thousands of churches would be planted. Large movements such as Calvary Chapel and Vineyard would get their start, all birthed out of this Jesus people movement. Now, this was not the first of those. Time would escape me to tell you about the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Welsh Revival, the Azusa Street Revival, the Toronto Blessing, just to name a few. This past year, it seems to me and the leadership team here at Zion that God is doing something pretty special here in our community. No pretense, no hype, but a sincere hunger for the presence of God and a genuine faith that is embodied through his people here in our city. It seems that as the church in the West is going through this kind of reckoning for the sins of celebrity culture and a nationalist framework, all these things are being torn down and the church is being called to repentance. So as a church, right, we can't do much about all the things that are happening in the West, but what we can do is we can choose for ourselves to be rooted in our identity and who we are as a church. We can have this call to come back to who we were made to be. And for us to ask this question, what does it mean for us to be the church? 
I felt that God was calling us here to this passage in Acts 2. For the next several weeks, we're going to be examining what it means for us to be the church by examining the birthplace of the church. Right? For us to reclaim our identity as the church, to recall our heritage of faith, and respond to the move of God before us. Brothers and sisters, we are Jesus' people. But before we jump into our text, I think it's important that we establish some groundwork. I want to lay before us a quick vision for the church in contrast to what our understandings of it are. The first big idea is this. The church is a people, not a place. The church is a people, not a place. When you hear the word church, what comes to your mind? For a lot of people, you say church, they think of like an old historic building that's got these hard wooden pews that are impossible to sit on, right? That's kind of a stale smell in the air, right? They think of that when they think church, right? Or they think of the institution and all of its corruption and all the things that happened there. However, this is not the biblical paradigm for church. All throughout the scriptures, the church is a people, and for us to step into our identity as a church, we must understand what it means to be a part of the church. The church is not a place to go or an institution to attend, but a people to belong to. The Greek word ecclesia means the called out ones. So when Jesus says, and I will build my church, he's not talking about a building or an institution. He's talking about a people. You and me, these called out ones. The church is these people who have been called out, right? And all throughout the meta narrative of Scripture, we see God is setting aside for Himself a people to partner with in this project Earth, right? God is setting for Himself a people to work through here on Earth. And so when you tell your friends and family members, I'm going to church, you're not talking about coming into this building. You're talking about gathering with these people. It would be church if we were meeting outside. It would be church if we were meeting in a house. It would be church if we were meeting at Chick-fil-A, right? It would be church because where the people of God are, there the church is. And so we have to first understand that paradigm that the church is a people, not a place. The second big idea is this. The church is a family, not a club. A few months back, I was doing a counseling, and I was having a conversation with somebody about their journey of faith. And in doing so, they told me, look, man, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible, but I don't believe in church. I don't, I don't need church to have a relationship with God. Now, this framework is a popular one, and I'm sure one you've heard if you've tried to invite somebody to church, right? It's, hey, come with me to church, man. I don't need church. I got Jesus. I have my own personal relationship with him, right? And I, I know the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. The only problem with that framework is Jesus and the Bible, right? Jesus does not call you to be a, uh, to, he does not call one disciple, he called his disciples. It's plural, there's, there's multiple of them. And what he calls you into is not just a one-on-one -on -one thing with him, but it's into a family. When you are born again in Jesus, you are born again into a new family. You have relatives now, right? For better or for worse. All of us have family members, right? 
You don't choose family. You're born into the family, right? Some family members you're, you're, you, you align with and you see with. Some family members you have to give caveats and explanations for, right? But at the end of the day, they're what? Family. The same is true of the body of Christ. We have brothers and sisters who we don't agree with, right? Who we don't necessarily want up there talking and speaking our behalf. But at the end of the day, they're brothers and sisters. And your call to the church is a call to belong to a family. Listen carefully. Nobody follows Jesus alone, right? You can't love your enemy if you're by yourself, right? You can't, you can't walk in confession and forgiveness. You can't be generous. You can't do any of those things if you are isolated. The only way you can live in the way of Jesus is to live in community. And what Jesus establishes for his people is for them to be a united people, a gathered people, an embodied people meeting together on a regular basis. So the church is not a club you get your membership to, right? You get your little gold star card and it gives you a discount here or whatever, right? The church is a family. The next big idea I want us to understand um, is with this reality of family is what Jesus says in Matthew 12. So Jesus is preaching and teaching and notice what happens in verse 46. It says, while Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told him, your mothers and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus takes this idea seriously, right? He's there, he's teaching someone's like, hey Jesus, your mom and your brother here. He's like, who are my mom and brothers? They're at the door. He's like, no, they're here. They're behind me. They're my disciples. They are now my family. And so when you become a part of the body of Christ, when you become a part of the family of Jesus, you're brought into this. You're brought into this community and this global community that we all belong to. You are brought into this place of belonging. And so the church is, is a family. The church is a people. But this is the next idea I want us to understand. That the church is about partnership, not spectatorship, but right in the church, you're a partner, not a spectator. The Olympics are winding down now, and it's been awesome to watch these incredible athletes do things I couldn't even imagine, right? There I am sitting on the couch watching the synchronized divers take place, right? I'm like, there's no way I would freaking belly flop on there. It would be a nightmare. But there's always one person who's playing armchair quarterback when you're watching a sporting event, right? It's like, I wouldn't have done that, and that's way easy, and how could they lose to that? And it's like, bro, you're eating potato chips on my couch with me, and how could you give criticism to the people who are actually in the game, right? And there's no one worse than an armchair quarterback. Well, how did you miss that throw, and how come they couldn't do that, right? It's like, if you went out there, you would embarrass yourself thoroughly and probably injure yourself quickly. Right? And then they begin to tell you about the glory days when I was quarterback back in 1980. It's like, okay, calm down, you know. You'd break a hip if you walked out there again. Right? But they have no idea what it takes to be there and to do it. This kind of mentality creeps into the church where people come and they think that they're spectators here. And so they come and they offer their advice or their opinions and their suggestions to us, you know. Well, I didn't really like the songs they chose for worship. 
newsflash, it wasn't for you, right? The pastor wasn't that funny. This is not a stand-up special. This is a sermon, right? You know, you know what this church needs, they say. You should, you should have a single moms who sell doTERRA ministry or a men who ride motorcycles with mustaches ministry, right? Now, I'm not throwing shade at single moms who sell doTERRA, right? Or dudes with motorcycles riding, with, or dudes riding motorcycles with mustaches. But I don't want to hear your recommendations if you don't have any skin in the game right? To be a part of the family of Jesus, to be a part of the church, doesn't mean you're just a spectator on the outside lobbying criticisms in. It was a little warm in there. It was a little stuffy. I wish it smelled nice. The coffee wasn't there. No, you're not a spectator. You're a partner. You're in this together with us. And so if you have a heart for single moms who, need to, who are selling doTERRA, right, then you start something for single moms who are, if you're a guy with a motorcycle and a mustache, you want to go, you start something then, right? You are a partner in this. Jesus calls you to this work. We have this understanding that it's the pastors and the worship leaders and the kind of, quote unquote, spiritual people who do the work of the ministry. That is nowhere to be found in the scriptures. I love what John Wimber says. He says this, everybody gets to play. When it comes to the kingdom of God, everybody gets to play, meaning what? You have a part to play in all of this. And this does not just mean volunteering here on a Sunday. It means at your work. It means at your school. It means with your friends. It means with your family. God is calling you to those places to represent his church, to represent his people, to extend his love, to extend his kindness, to extend his grace, to tell the story of who he is. God is commissioning you to all those places. The, the picture we get in Ephesians 4 is that the work of the pastors and the leaders of a church aren't to do the work of the ministry. It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, meaning help you fulfill the calling that God has on your life and the places where you are. There are people you know, people you talk to, people you meet with that I will never meet in my entire life, and you are the one the Lord is sending to that place. And as a part of the church, you are that representative. It's not, let me get you to talk to my pastor. It's you're there, you talk to them. It's not, let me get you to come into this building. No, you are the sent out ones. You are the ones being commissioned to carry this work forward. And so there's not this consumeristic, uh, uh, spectating heart posture here. This is yours. So this is your church. This is your people that you belong to just as much as it is mine or anybody else's. And so these are the paradigms we have to come to as we think about the church. Now let's talk about Pentecost. Verse 1 says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now before we just jump into the text, I want to provide some context to what's been happening here. And Acts 1 does this beautifully. Verse 3 says this, After his suffering, this is Jesus, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them for a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father's promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, he said, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up in the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has, taken, who, has taken, who has been taken from you into heaven will be back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus rises from the grave. And he spends some time, 40 days, with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God, sharing meals with them, etc. And at one of those meals, Jesus tells them, listen, before you go out and do the work I've called you to do, I need you to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes, the Spirit who I've been talking to you about all this time, this advocate, this helper, this gift from the Father. You need to wait in Jerusalem until this comes. And so Acts 2, we stumble upon that scene. The disciples are waiting. Now, before we move on from here, I think there's a really important word for us and that the church was first born by waiting for the Lord. The church was birthed first by waiting for the Lord. Now, when people think of this idea of waiting on the Lord, they think of like the MVD. Like you go, you take a number, you sit in line, and you wait till God calls you. Hello, yes? I'd like a miracle, please. Thank you. All right, go back, and you, you had the wrong paperwork. You didn't bring your driver's license, whatever, right? Have to go sit down and wait again. This is not what waiting on the Lord means. Waiting on the Lord, biblically speaking, does not mean you sit there with your arms crossed watching the, you know, the TV with the subtitles hoping it goes by faster. It means that you actively seek his face until he comes. You actively seek him until he shows up. You actively seek him until he moves. It's praying, it's interceding, it's fasting, it's seeking. That is what waiting on the Lord looks like. It's not just, well, hurry up, Lord, it's getting hot. But you're seeking, you're, you're, you're pressing in, you're looking after. And this is how the church is birthed, by waiting for the move of God, by praying, by resting, by waiting, by looking to him to show up and move in power. And so the church begins in this place of intense seeking for the outpouring of God's Spirit. Now notice, they, the Spirit comes down not by them hyping it up, but the Spirit chooses when He wants to come down, right? They're not having these intense worship things and keep doing these things, getting the hype and the strobe lights and getting things crazy and God moving, but the Spirit comes down as He pleases, and this is a paradigm that I think we don't understand in the church. It's we think if it's emotional, it's hype. But listen, emotional energy is not the same as spiritual power. They're two very different things. We could get everyone in here crying and show this emotional video and all this stuff, but that's not the same as the spirit coming down. The spirit is a person with a will, and he chooses what he does. And so our job as the body of Christ is to create a place for him to move and to simply pray, come Holy Spirit and ask for God to move. Now, let's talk about Pentecost. What on earth is Pentecost? Now, when you hear the word Pentecost, you probably immediately think of Pentecostal and you immediately think of going down some YouTube rabbit holes of like dudes with handkerchiefs and people falling on the ground and people barking and screaming and crazy. Okay, that's not the same thing here, okay? 
Pentecost was one of the three pilgrimage feasts that the Jewish people would have, right? There was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now, for each one of these feasts, anyone who could travel to Jerusalem would, and they'd celebrate these festivals. So the population in Jerusalem would be busting at the seams during these times. It'd be almost impossible to find a place to stay. So Passover takes place in around March or April, and Pentecost takes place 50 days after Passover, right? So hence the name Pentecost literally means 50th. It's 50 days after the Passover, right? And then tabernacles would take place sometime around September. So Jesus is crucified on the Passover, rises from the grave, spends 40 days with his disciples, and then just a few days later is Pentecost. Now why do they celebrate Pentecost? Well, Passover is all about God delivering his people out of Egypt, right? You remember the story. Plague, a plague was coming through. God told the people to sacrifice a lamb to get the blood and to paint it over their doorways so that the plague would what? Pass over them. And so they did this feast and then celebrate God, that plague passing over, God sparing the people and delivering the people out of Egypt, right? And so Pentecost is 50 days out of that where um, God delivers his, his, his covenant to his people on Mount Sinai with Moses, right? As Moses is meeting with God on Mount Sinai, he gets the terms of the covenant. So God is gathering for himself a people and he says, here are the terms in which we and you, you and me will have relationship and that happens on Pentecost. God is forming for himself a people on Pentecost. You see him do this again now in Acts, right? But Pentecost was this celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, this is where things get a little strange, if we could be honest. Verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All right, have a good day. Good luck with that. We'll see you later. No. So... The, the, the body is all gathered together, and suddenly they hear the sound of a gust of wind coming through. <sighs> this wind just blows through, and suddenly they see fire, okay, hang in there with me, separate over all the people in the room, and then little pockets of fire are kind of above every single person. Now, you, before you think, like they did, they had too much wine, right? Before you think about those things, we need to understand the biblical imagery that's happening here, right? This is a profound thing taking place. So I want to first let us talk about the wind aspect. So wind and spirit are all the same word. In uh, and, and, and Hebrew, it's the word ruach. Can you say ruach? You gotta say that flam at the back of your throat there, ruach. Now the way that this word comes, it literally means breath. The word that this describes is if you were to put your hand in front of your mouth as you speak and say ruach, what you feel on your hand, that's ruach. It's the breath inside of your lungs, right? So they would talk about this breath in us, this life animating spirit that lives within us is ruach. When it's windy outside and the wind is blowing the trees, it's the ruach blowing the trees. It's the wind. It's this invisible force. It's this invisible force that's pushing things, that's animating life, that's, that's, that's generating outside of us, right? And so the Holy Spirit is the holy ruach. It's God's spirit. It's God's breath. I want you to think about when God creates Adam, what does he do to give him life? He breathes in his nostrils. He ruach in his nostrils. And Adam comes to life. 
And so we, uh, we also see that as Jesus leaves in John 20, or he's getting ready to leave in John 20, he tells his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. And you know what he does? He breathes on them, ruachs on them, and they receive that. And so when we see the word wind here, it's with intentionality. That as the Spirit comes rushing in like a mighty wind, it's a mighty ruach. As the Spirit was hovering over the waters in Genesis, that the Ruach was hovering over the waters, that same Ruach is now blowing through the church. And so there's that imagery there. The next one, and even the more important one, is this imagery of fire. All throughout the Scriptures, fire is the symbol for God's empowering presence. I want you to think about when God begins to make His plans to deliver uh, Israel out of Egypt. And he meets with a man named Moses. How does he reveal himself to Moses and reveal his plan? Who knows? Bible trivia. You get a donut at the end. The burning, what? Bush, right? This burning bush, this bush that is consumed by, it's consumed by fire, but it's not being taken up. It's not being whisked away. It's just unraveled in flames. This is how God reveals his presence to Moses. We think about Mount Sinai when Moses gets the terms of the covenant. It is fire that's descending over Mount Sinai. We think about how God led the children of Israel through the wilderness. It was through what? A pillar of fire. And then when they finally established the tabernacle, this, this place, this dwelling place for God's presence, God confirms that his presence is there. How? Through fire comes down onto the tabernacle. Fire is the symbol of God's presence. So what on earth is happening here in Acts? I want you to think about the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. We get this intimate detail that there in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, there was a veil that separated the two places. And we hear that at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil was torn, meaning God's spirit was no longer, his presence was no longer bound to a place, but it was unleashed onto his creation. And then we get this imagery here in Acts, and we see that God's presence is now residing over his people. I want you to think back, if you were here last week, to John's sermon last week, which he crushed it last week. And he concluded his sermon by saying this, we are God's temple, right? So what this imagery in Acts is telling us here, where God's presence was once bound to a physical place, now resides on his people, God's empowering presence now lives in you. What we have here at Pentecost is God's people become empowered. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave now resides on every single one of his people. Now notice, does it say on the super holy, they got up early that morning and read their Bible people, they got the flame. The other people, they had to borrow somebody else's flame. No, on every single person, the flame was over them, symbolizing God's empowering presence living in them. These people are now the living temple. The body of Christ, this community, is now the temple of God as a gathered, united people. And so we see God's spirit rests on these people as a symbol that his presence is now on them. Now, it is not human wisdom or strength, but God's power that rests on his people. And know this. God does not call his people to something that he will not empower them to do.
God does not call his people to something that he will not first empower them to do. And so we see here in this scene in Acts 2 that God's spirit rests on his people to empower them to go take this message to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And they need to wait for him and for that power. Lord's Weapons next verse 4 says this, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying together in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, and visitors of Rome. Both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in, their own t- or in our own tongues. So, after the Spirit comes, then people start speaking in other languages. So, there's a, there's a there's a paradigm we have to establish here around tongues. We'll probably get into this more at some time later, not all today. But there's two different manifestations of tongues. There's what's happening here, and there's what happens with Paul talks in 1 Corinthians and other places about. So, in Greek and Hebrew, there's not multiple languages for what's being talked about here. Tongue simply just means language. So they're speaking in other languages, right? And so they could have done a better job with the translators doing this, but it's kind of more tradition to translate this as tongues. But there's a prayer language we see in 1 Corinthians uh, and other places, and then there's languages that's happening here. What's happening here is this miracle of languages, not the prayer language thing that you've seen on TV or whatever, right? At some point we'll address that, but that's a whole other thing that we're not going to open today. But let's focus on this, what's happening here in this scene. So, it would be like, in this community, imagine, I want you to put yourself in the story for a minute. We're all here, we're seeking the Lord, we're waiting for him, big wind comes through, right? All of us have flames over our head, kind of crazy. But then, it gets crazier, right? In the sense that everyone in the room begins to speak a language they've never spoke before. We got Portuguese over here, German over here, Russian over there, Swedish in the back, right? All this thing that you've never spoken before. And all sorts of people are outside of the room hearing this chaos happening here. They step into the room, let's say the United Nations bus was rolling out, right? And there's all these nations represented. And they come and they hear, and people are walking in and saying, why am I hearing my language in Los Lunas, New Mexico? Why am I hearing Portuguese being spoken right now in Los Lunas, New Mexico, etc.? So all these people, remember, this is a pilgrimage feast. So all these Jews from all around the world have come to Jerusalem to worship, and they hear their language being spoken. And they see, like, do these people are from Los Lunas? How do they know my language? How do they know? These are Galileans. How do they know their language? And so what's happening here? Why this? I want to draw your attention to a story in Genesis 11, right, we have the Tower of Babel. The humanity is coming together, and they make the decision, we're going to build our way to God. So what does God do? They have one language. He confuses the language they can no longer communicate. What's happening here in Acts is the undoing of the Tower of Babel. What, what, when humans decided we want to make our way to God, God confused the language. But when God came down, he made all of them be able to understand one another, proclaiming one simple message. I am the God of the nations, of all people, of all languages, of all tongues. That is the God who I am. And in the birth of the New Testament church, it would be about all people. Every language, every nation, every tongue will be represented in my community. 
And knowing this, God speaks your language. It's a powerful thing that takes place here. Because the community of Jesus is that. It's a multi-ethnic community. No matter where you're from, no matter what language you speak, no matter what background you have, no matter who your family is, here you belong. Here God speaks your language. He is your God too. And so as these people are all coming together, it is this beautiful symbol that, that, that what's happening here is God is pouring out his spirit. He's making himself known and letting him know, this is my new family. From all sorts of different areas and places and tongues, this is my community now. But what are they saying, right, in all these languages? Like, what are they even talking about? It says here, they were declaring the wonders of God in those languages. They're proclaiming the story of who God is and the languages that these people come from so that they can hear the story of God for themselves. They're proclaiming this gospel message, this good news about the God who has come down to set us free, ministering to people in their own language. Powerful move of God that takes place here. Verse 12 says this, amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Same, right? What on earth does all of this mean? Verse 13 says this, but some, however, made fun of them and said, they had too much wine. Wherever there is a move of God, the cynics will show up. Think about what just took place here, okay? Fire over people's head, gushing wind comes through. People are speaking languages they don't want to know. They have never spoken before. And their response to all of this is they're drunk. They've had too much to drink. Peter goes on to address this and says, dude, it's 9 in the morning, right? It's <laughs> way too early to be getting drunk, right? But, but it's 9 in the morning, and there's cynics that are already saying, trying to give justification, explanation for what's already taking place. Oh, it's, it's, they're drunk. They're, 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 and giving their, their, their criticisms, their, their cynical view of what's taking place. Anywhere that there is a move of God, cynics will come. Is that really what's going on? Is that really what's happening? Or whatever. When you tell people even about what God's doing here at Zion, cynics will come. Well, do you know? And this and that, whatever. Establishing all these different things around it. Wherever there is a move of God, opposition will always show up. You want to know why people thought they were drunk? It wasn't just because of the language. It was because of the joy they expressed. As they're declaring the wonders of God, they're doing it in joy. This, this joy is exuberating out of these people. And they're expressing the power and wonder-working move of God before them. I believe, church, that right now we are in a move of God. That God is doing something unique here. That he's gathered his people in this place to welcome his presence. I believe we're in a unique moment. I believe we're in the moment like times before where they're asking the question, is God dead? Right? We're living in a more increasingly secular environment. There, 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 are, there are captivating ideologies at place. There are all sorts of things pressing in on the church. 
This is why the last series we did as a leadership team, we decided to call our church to a time of fasting and prayer because we believe we're in a holy moment. What will be the story that's written of this moment in history? I think about the story that I first told you about the Jesus People Movement and that powerful outpouring of God's Spirit where hundreds of thousands of people all across the nation in an incredibly secular environment came to follow Jesus. Because why? What happened? The Spirit came down. God moved. There were leaders, there were people in place praying and asking for God to do these things, and God showed up in power and moved in wonder. I believe, brothers and sisters, we are on the precipice of another move of God. I really do. I sincerely believe that. The only question is, is will we be a part of it? Will we join the work that God is doing? There's this passage where it talks about Jesus not able to do the works he wanted to do in a city because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith. I believe in the cultural moment that we're in, God is wanting to do something beautiful. And it's clear that God is doing something beautiful. As I've gotten to speak with each one of you and hear your stories and hear about how God brought you here and what God's doing in your life and, 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 the, and the wonderful things. We could go on for weeks and weeks talking about the stories that what God is doing here in this room. God is doing something unique here. But we don't want this to be about hype where we come and we scream and shout and get things crazy and music blaring to kind of hype ourselves into it, right? We don't want it to be about pretense. It doesn't want to be fake. It doesn't want to be phony. We want a sincere, genuine desire to pursue after the presence of God. I believe that the Lord is calling us to once again be Jesus people. For us to go into the places and spaces in which God has called us to and to represent him well. Will we be a part of the work that God is doing here? Will we be, will we be written into the story of what God is doing here in our city? And so what we want to do right now is to pray and to say, come Holy Spirit. Because look, we don't want this to be a work of the flesh. We don't want it to be because we handed out all these flyers and forced people here and made an emotional environment and kind of manipulated people to cry a little and then come to the floor and get, we want people to genuinely encounter the risen Jesus. We want people to have a genuine relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to read stories anymore. I want to walk in the reality of a move of God. I don't want to have to keep looking back to revivals of old. I want to walk in one now. And I believe this is what God wants to do. The scripture says that God searches the whole earth looking for those whose hearts are loyal to him that he may show himself strong on their behalf. Meaning what? God is searching. He's looking. He's saying, who is looking for me? Who is desiring a move for me? Who wants me to show up? And where his people are saying, here, Lord, here in this place, I will move there. I will show myself strong on your behalf. Will our city, will this church be a place that says, God, here. If you don't move anywhere, move here. Because here's where we're seeking you. Here's where we're asking. Here's where we're calling out. But that only happens if we as a people cry out to him. It only happens if we come in faith believing God, move here. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at what it means for us to be this kind of a church. What it means for us to get rid of the fluff and the nonsense and the noise and to genuinely follow Jesus. And to come back to being Jesus people. 
what that genuinely looks like. And so I want to call the worship team back up, and I want us to close out um, our, our time today in worship, asking, Lord, come down, move, speak, breathe. I want the narrative here in our city to be flipped on its head. I want the narrative about the church in the West and all that stuff happening to be flipped on its head because I believe God wants to do something powerful. And I believe he wants to do it through you, through me, through this church. And so church, I'm going to ask us to stand now. And as we stand, I want to ask us to worship and I know there's other things going on and other things to go and there's lunch to go to and the games to watch later, whatever. I know there's all those things. But just give these next few moments to the Lord and ask the Spirit to come down, to move in power. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in this community. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.